Hebrews 2.13-2.18 The tenth talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on December 7, 2014 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2014. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handout number 4. Clarification of Hebrews 2, verse 13, accompanies this talk. If you have my translation, I want to pick up at paragraph 8, chapter 2, verse 13. That's the one we talked about last week, but unfortunately, I was not as clear as I needed to be on what exactly was going on there, and I think I probably confused a lot of you. If ever it sounds like you're just not following something, it's my fault. It's not your fault. I went and thought about it some more after the talk last week, and I think I realize now what's going on. So I sent out a five-page paper to explain my new thinking, and perhaps you've had a chance to look at that. If you haven't, let me just briefly go over what was in that paper. One of the issues was back in paragraph 6, so it would be 2, 8, or 9, Now in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. He had just quoted the psalm, Psalm 8, and talks about how the Messiah, the Son of God, is destined to reign sovereignly over all of the created order, all of creation. And that's a promise to David and his seed. We know, and Paul is arguing, that Jesus is the Son of David who's the fulfillment of all of that. He's the one who's going to reign over the whole created order. Well, he quotes the psalm where it's rehearsing that prediction and that promise to the Messiah. And then he comments after the psalm, Now in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. So if you read the promise, what's left out? When Jesus is going to rule as king, he's going to rule as king over everything, literally everything in all of reality. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made a little lower than the angeloi, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the death that he suffered, to the end that by the grace of God he might taste death in the place of every person. Now, before this week, or before a week ago in the evening, I was inclined to think that the crux of the issue for Paul was in that third sentence. But we do see him who is made a little lower than the angeloi, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. That I thought that was the crux of the matter for Paul. But I've changed my thinking about that. The crux of the matter is the sentence right before that. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. And then three and on is sort of an aside. It's more parenthetical. Okay, we don't yet see all things subjected to him. It's not as if we don't see nothing, though. We do see him who is made a little lower than the angeloi, crowned with glory and honor, and on and on and on. So I would argue that I would now reformat this, and I would make the third sentence of verse 6 go with paragraph 7 instead of 6, and then make all of the new paragraph 7 basically parenthetical. Instead of paragraph 8 being parenthetical, paragraph 7 is parenthetical. So the argument he's making is, now in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. As a response, I will put my trust in him. Behold, I am the children whom God has given me. If you take out the stuff that's at all extraneous, that's his point. Yes, we don't see everything subjected to him. Nonetheless, I and people like me are committed to believing the promise of God anyway, and we put our trust in God to bring about the fulfillment of his promise to his son Jesus in his time, in his place, in his way. So there are those of us who recognize the need to just trust God, just as Isaiah did in his time. So what that means then is the other shift in my thinking is I thought the I will put my trust in him was the original I of Isaiah, that that's Isaiah speaking, 
But I think what he's doing instead is Paul is appropriating Isaiah's statement as his own. He's making it his own. I will put my trust in him. I, Paul, will put my trust in him. Even further, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. So Paul is saying, I put my trust in God. I and the children whom God has given me. And we'll talk about that in a second. So I think Paul is appropriating that statement to, hit, to express his own response. And what is he responding to? He's responding to the dilemma that he's created back in paragraph 6. The dilemma, namely, is God has promised that the Son of God will rule over all of God's creation. Look around. Is Jesus ruling over all of God's creation? So he performed miracles. So he was raised from the dead after the Romans tortured him to death on the cross. But he, and he was raised from the dead. That's got a lot going for it. But the promise was that he'll reign over all of creation. Is Jesus reigning over all of creation? Then I'm not thinking he's the Messiah. So the readers are tempted to think. I'm thinking he may not be the Messiah after all. Maybe you guys are lying when you say he was raised from the dead. Maybe it never really happened. I don't know. I don't know what to do with his resurrection, but I don't see him reigning over all of creation. That's exactly the perspective of Orthodox Jews today. The thing that convinces them absolutely that Jesus is not the Messiah is, look around, do you see peace on the earth? If not, then Jesus is not the Messiah. Because the promise was that when the Messiah comes, here's the things that are going to happen. Here's what you're going to see as a result of the Messiah coming, and you don't see it. So there's the dilemma that Paul is wanting, that I think is part of, and I had not articulated this to myself before yet either. I think that's part of the reason that his readers are having second thoughts. One was his humanity. The second one was his crucifixion. And the third one is the promises made to the Messiah are not realized, are not actualized. So how can this dude be the Messiah? When he doesn't look like a Messiah, he doesn't act like a Messiah, and the results have not been what you would expect if the Messiah was in the world. So he must not be the Messiah. And Paul is writing this letter. He's responded to his humanity. He is responding in an indirect way to his crucifixion and mortality in the parenthetical section. But I think what he's hitting head on in this section is that third objection. We don't see all things subject to him. So how can he be the Messiah? And Paul's response is, well, we're kind of in the position that Isaiah was in, aren't we? When Isaiah was faced with exactly that same dilemma where God had promised to establish the throne of David forever, and yet here come the northern kingdom and the Arameans look like they want to crush Israel and take the throne away from the son of David. It's threatened. God's promises are being threatened. It doesn't look like God is intent on keeping his promises. And what does Isaiah say? I will put my trust in God. Behold, I and the children whom God has given me are both signs and wonders to Israel. That is, we're committed to proclaiming the promise that God has made to us. God said he'd keep the promise. He says he's still going to keep the promise. We just need to believe that in his own way, in his own time, He's going to keep the promise that he made. And Paul is saying, that's the position that we're in. So as for me, I will put my trust in him. Behold, I am the children whom God has given me. Now, if it's a problem to you that he's appropriating Isaiah's words and putting Isaiah's words in his own mouth, it's not really any different than what Jesus did on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those were David's words from Psalm 22. And Jesus was taking those very words that David penned in Psalm 22 and putting them in his own mouth. And I think the force of that, the reason that you would appropriate other words, is because you bring attention, you underline and draw attention to the connections that exist between your circumstances and the circumstances in which the original speaker spoke those in. In the case of David and Jesus, David is speaking those because he's the Messiah, the anointed one, the king of Israel. He's hated by the enemies of God, and the enemies of God are surrounding him, ready to kill him. And it's in that context that David says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And expresses his anxiety and his stress and his fear and his emotional response to the situation that he's in. 
the psalm ends up being hopeful at the end, but at the beginning he's just simply giving voice to the danger that he's in and how he experiences that danger. What's the connection between that and the cross? Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the king of Israel, who is hated precisely because he's the king of Israel, and they're out to kill him. They're surrounding him, about to kill him. And so he draws the connection with David's experience by quoting the very same thing that David said in his circumstances. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what Jesus doesn't go on to say is by making that association, it becomes clear that the hopeful ending to Psalm 22 is probably also in Jesus' mind. That's the one that will get quoted at the end of 7. I will proclaim your name to my brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing your praise, David says. Why? Because he says, I know that you will deliver me. And when I am delivered, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing your praise. Jesus did likewise. Interestingly, later in Hebrews, Paul is going to mention Jesus crying out and groaning, and he's talking about Gethsemane, for deliverance. And then Paul says, and he was delivered. Now, we don't think of the crucifixion as deliverance, but what Paul is thinking is he feared the cross, certainly, and the death that was to follow the cross. But how did God deliver him? He raised him from the dead. He didn't leave him in the grave. We might have voted to be delivered a little sooner, but nonetheless, from Paul's perspective, it's absolutely a deliverance. It's a deliverance from death. The grave does not keep him. And he's our forerunner, as we saw earlier here in chapter 1. He's the forerunner who's gone on before us, who's finished the race and has received his reward, namely life beyond the grave. And therefore, just as Jesus received his reward, one day we will receive that same reward if we finish our race. So anyway, we've seen it before where somebody will appropriate the words of a prophet or a psalm, the psalmist, and make them his own words. I think that's what Paul is doing here. He's making Isaiah's words his words. Okay, that's the gist of what I said in the paper. Those of you who did read the paper or those of you who didn't read the paper, any questions about my argument in the paper or what I just said here this morning about paragraph 8? I got a little bit more technical in the paper about a particular phrase in the Greek here, but I won't get in that here unless you have questions about that. I do have a general question about cross and its relevance to... Do you think that first century student of the Old Testament would have been able to anticipate what happened to Jesus on the cross as the Messiah? Would they have said, oh, of course, death on the cross, resurrection. Is that hinted at anywhere in the, New Test- in the Old Testament? Or? Well, I think it's hinted at. I mean, it depends on what you mean. What's the word you used? Could they have anticipated? Is that the word you used? Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is Paul is definitely talking about unbelief, and it's kind of pretty much the standard thing for a lot of Hebrews at the time. But I'm trying to imagine, I think there might have been some students of the Old Testament who were favorable to the truth, and maybe after Jesus died and came back and went and ascended, they started flipping through their Bibles. Look, you know, did we see this in the Old Testament? Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, see, it depends on when in the first century. <laughs> Is it before his resurrection or after his yeah. resurrection? Before his resurrection, I don't think anybody anticipated it. The only person who could have anticipated it was somebody who got really lucky and creative in their imagination. And to my knowledge, we don't have any record of anyone who put it together and who knew that he was going to the cross. Not even the people. The thing that's astonishing to me, when we were going through Luke, remember, about three on three occasions, he says, okay, guys, here's what's going to happen. We're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be mocked and held in contempt. I'm going to be crucified. And then on the third day, I'm going to raise again. Right? Got it? They're right in the middle of all those events, and they don't get it. He laid out a blueprint for what's going to happen to him, and they still don't get it. Because it just didn't, in fact, one of the times when he says that's going to happen to him is the time where Peter comes to him and says, no, 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 Jesus, that's not going to happen to you. And that's when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I'm trying to think, what on earth is Peter thinking? Jesus is sitting there telling you, predicting what's going to happen to him, and you're telling him, no, it's not? What are you thinking? And the only, what I would imagine that he's thinking is that Jesus is just sort of depressed and kind of pessimistic here. No, and so what he's trying to do is encourage him. Oh, no, Jesus, you don't understand how popular you are. You don't understand how powerful 
you have been in influencing all these people, there's no way they're going to let you be put to death. It's just not going to happen. He's speaking culturally and sociologically. Jesus is speaking as a prophet. He knows exactly what's going to happen. But for some reason, they didn't have anything to anchor what Jesus was telling them. They didn't have anything to tie that down. So whether they didn't remember that he had said that, or even if they remembered it, they just didn't know what to do with it. So even when they were in the middle of him being arrested and scourged and crucified, at the end of the crucifixion, you'd think they'd go check, 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 up, next up is the resurrection. They don't even do that. And it's just mind-boggling from our perspective. It's mind-boggling that they didn't. On the one hand, on the other hand, we would have done the same thing. There was no way to anticipate that God's Messiah was going to be defeated by the enemies of God and God would gain his victory by raising him from the dead. That wasn't going to be anticipated. Now you ask, were there hints that that was going to happen? Yeah, I think there were hints. I think Isaiah 53 in retrospect is amazing. You look at Isaiah 53 and you go, it's exactly what happened. It was right there, being predicted right there. But without knowing how all that stuff applies and what exactly it's describing, if you're on the other side of that trying to predict what that's describing, yeah, you're not going to be able to do it. And that's why Paul calls that the crucifixion of the Messiah, the mystery that was hidden from past generations. It's a secret. The past generations just never put that together. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. Paul didn't either. Paul didn't even put it together after Jesus' resurrection until Jesus appeared to Paul. And once he appeared to Paul in person, alive, beyond the grave, now Paul has a different perspective because, okay, so Jesus is actually the Messiah that didn't follow from how I understood what the prophets were saying. I need to go back and read it again. And that Paul took several years doing that. And we are the benefactors of Paul's going back to the scriptures after Jesus showed himself to him as the Messiah, going back to the scriptures and now seeing what had been hidden from all the many generations in the past. When you already know the answer, it's easier to calculate how to get the answer. But when you don't have the answer, that was an insurmountable task to anticipate Jesus' crucifixion. Okay, then we looked at paragraph 9. I won't go over that again, but just simply, I think the way to understand paragraph 9, therefore, since the children share flesh and blood in common, he did himself similarly partake of them as well, with the result that through his death he rendered powerless the one who had the power of death, that is, the adversary, and freed from their slavery those who had been liable to the fear of death all their lives. Or I think that could be translated more helpfully as he rendered powerless the one who had the power of death, that is the adversary, and freed from their slavery those who had been liable to fear-inducing death all their lives. What they were enslaved to was the condemnation to death. They weren't freed from their fear, they were freed from death itself. But Paul is simply reminding us of what a fearful and fear-producing reality our condemnation to death actually is. So I think we would use an adjective there. Now, how did he render powerless the one who had the power of death? Think of Satan as a prosecutor in a court case. He's got all the evidence on his side. He can come and charge us with the crime of being morally depraved creatures, and he's got truth on his side. He's got, a lot, he's got the power of truth and evidence on his side to condemn us, to suggest to the judge of all the living that this person doesn't deserve the blessing of life. He deserves to be destroyed. So how do you render powerless a prosecutor with such a great case set before him? Because we don't have to be proven innocent with what God is going to do and with what Jesus has accomplished in our behalf, Jesus is going to get mercy from the judge of all the living. He's going to secure mercy for us. I can go before the judge, I plead guilty, I am guilty as charged. And my advocate is going to say, but your honor, would you grant him mercy? I want him in my kingdom. I want this individual to live with me forever in the eternal kingdom of God. Would you just simply grant him mercy and not give him the sentence that is his due. The prosecutor is completely 
his case completely collapses. Because if I can be met with mercy, it really doesn't make any difference how compelling the prosecutor's case is because the judge is just going to grant mercy. Yeah, he's guilty. Yeah, we can stipulate that. He deserves eternal condemnation. Yeah, but because of my son, I'm going to grant him mercy and completely disempowers adversary who would advocate for our condemnation. So that's what we talked about last week with respect to nine. Any questions about that? Oh, 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 sorry. So I think what Paul is doing is we, back up. So he's saying, I will put my trust in him. Now, why would he say that? I think he wants to use his own example as sort of an indirect kind of exhortation. He's inviting other people to follow his example. I, like Isaiah, am going to trust in the promises of God. Would you join me and do so as well? That, that's never stated, but I think that's implicitly why he's saying that. And therefore, it's an indirect exhortation by example. He fortifies the exhortation by saying, and I'm not like alone. There are others as well who have chosen to believe the promises of God with respect to this Jesus. And borrowing then the language of Isaiah, he says, behold, I am the children whom God has given me. Just as Isaiah was not alone, his children joined him in his faith. I am not alone. There are others who join me in, my, in this faith as well. He might have in mind that they are sort of metaphorically children in that many of those who have joined Paul in his faith are people who have heard the gospel from Paul. We, to this day, will talk about people being my spiritual parent, the people that introduced us to the truth of the gospel, and they sort of brought me into the kingdom of God through their teaching or evangelism or whatever. He may have in mind that kind of relationship. There are my children, that is, those people who experienced a second birth with my proclamation of the gospel as a catalyst. That may be what he has in mind, although I don't think it's necessary. I think really all that's required for his argument is I'm not alone. There's a whole group of people who join me in believing the promises of God. And he just calls them children because that's the language of Isaiah. Those other people in Isaiah's case were his children. Okay, anything else on 8 or 9? Okay, paragraph 10, that'll be two, chapter 2, verse 16 in your normal Bible. Now, assuredly, he is not obtaining angeloi, rather he is obtaining the seed of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made in all respects like his brothers so that he might be merciful as well as a high priest who is faithful with regard to things that pertain to God, so that he would make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, by what he has suffered, he who was tried is able to bring help to those who are being tried. Okay? Most of your English translations, I think this is true, instead of saying in verse 16, sentence 1, now assuredly he is not obtaining on glory, I think it says... He does not give help to angels. He gives help to the seed of Abraham. I think the reason they translate it that way is because of the last verse, sentence four. Now, by what he has suffered, he who is tried is able to bring help to those who are being tried. The word there in the Greek is simply the word for laying hold of something or laying your hands on something. And one of the reasons you can lay your hands on someone or something is to give help to that someone or something. And so it's certainly within the field of meaning of that word that you could use it to talk about giving help to people. I think that's true. I don't know of any examples offhand, but I think that that's probably true. But I don't think that's what he's saying. What's odd is that he brings up the seed of Abraham in this context. Why on earth would you do that? How is that relevant to anything that he's saying here? It is striking that he jumps to the seed of Abraham. And so we have to ask ourselves, He's doing that for a reason, so what does that mean? Well, what it suggests, and this is certainly true in Paul's theology, if you go to the book of Galatians, it's a major part of his argument in the book of Galatians. Who is the seed of Abraham? Now, what does he have in mind? Who's the seed of Abraham? If you go back in the history of how this whole thing developed, it all begins with God coming to Abraham. And the very first initial promise that he makes to Abraham is, Abraham... I'm going to bless you, and in you, that is, by being a part of your family, by being of your seed, in other words, and by being of your seed, 
all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed as well. Now, what is he going to bless Abraham with? Well, life. That's clearly how Paul interprets it. The blessing that it was going to be given to Abraham was eternal life, ionic life, life in the eternal kingdom of God in the age to come, as opposed to the death that you see as that curse, that doom that's hanging over every human being. We've seen the whole earth wiped out once before Abraham because of their sin and rebellion against God. God is serious about his judgment. He's shown himself serious about judgment. Is Abraham just going to be one more human being who gets judged by the judgment of God? That's the curse that is over every human being. But to Abraham, he comes, Abraham, you I'm going to bless. You are not going to be condemned to death. You are not going to experience the result of the curse. You I'm going to bless. So if the curse is death, then the bless is its opposite, life beyond the grave in the eternal kingdom of God. Abraham, I'm going to grant that to you and to your seed that is in you, that is by being a member of your tribe, by belonging to your tribe, all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed with that same blessing of life instead of condemnation and death. And of course, that's ironic, because how can you belong to Abraham's tribe and be a part of all the other peoples of the earth who are not a part of your tribe? Obviously, not literally. It's not your literal descendants who are going to get this blessing. It's your metaphorical descendants who are going to get this blessing. So, as we see in the book of Galatians, what Paul argues is, what constitutes you a child of Abraham? such that you're going to be blessed with the blessing of Abraham if you believe in Jesus. It's the ones who believe in Jesus who are the ones that God had in mind all the way back in the time of Abraham when he said, and in you all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed. God doesn't say how that's going to happen. Paul says, now we know. It's through Jesus, our advocate, our high priest, the intercessor, who's going to stand in and get mercy, secure mercy for us from God. That's how we're going to be blessed with the blessing of Abraham. So the seed of Abraham is a loaded term for Paul. It conjures up that covenant, that promise that God made with Abraham and how that's going to be fulfilled and how that ties in with Jesus and everything is conjured up by that phrase. So I think the point that he's making, I translated it, now assuredly he is not obtaining angeloi. That is, what is he laying hold of? Laying hold of for what purpose? To belong to his people and join him in the eternal kingdom of God. That is, who is Jesus securing to be citizens in his eternal kingdom one day? Angeloi? No. It's the seed of Abraham that he's securing for himself and bringing into his circle to be the people that he will advocate for such that we are granted life. That's who he's after. That's who he came to collect and gather and make his own, not Angeloi. And how does he know that? Well, because the promise is thousands of years old. It goes all the way back to Abraham. That's what God, when God started this whole project, that's what he had in mind, is taking human beings, people from all the peoples of the earth, from every tribe and family group in history, taking people out from them and making them part of the people of God who would receive the blessing of Abraham. So he starts this paragraph by saying, it's not Angeloi that he's going to make subjects of himself in the kingdom of God. It's human beings that he's going to make subjects of himself in the kingdom of God. Therefore, he had to be made in all respects like his brothers so that he might be merciful, before I get into that back up. What's the significance of that, if they are the seed of Abraham that he's bringing into the kingdom of God? Two things. The seed of Abraham, unlike Angeloi, are in need of mercy. They're morally depraved. They're broken. They're morally unworthy people. They're in need of redemption. I guess it's only one thing. The second thing is they're in need of redemption. That's not true of Angeloi. They don't need redemption. Jesus doesn't need to die on the cross for the Angeloi, but he's not after Angeloi. They're not going to be the people that are going to populate the kingdom of God. It's depraved, rebellious, sinful, evil human beings that are going to be culled out from this sea of sinful humanity 
and made to belong to God and made to be participants forever and ever in the eternal kingdom of God. But that can't happen unless they're redeemed. Okay? So that leads him to say the next thing. He says, therefore, he had to be made in all respects like his brothers so that he might be merciful as well as a high priest who is faithful with regard to the things that pertain to God so that he would make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, I think what's faked me out in our normal English translation, most English translations have so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest, or maybe it's the other way around, faithful and merciful high priest, which seems to make those co-equal in importance. I don't think they're co-equal in importance. What he wants to stress is the merciful part here. So I've tried to separate them out in the way I've translated that. He had to be made like his brothers so that he might be merciful as well as a high priest who is faithful with regard to the things that pertain to God. But he had to be that he might be merciful so that he would make propitiation for the sins of the people. And I think what he's talking about, unless I'm really missing it here, I think he's talking about Jesus' mindset, Jesus' psychology here. By coming as a human being... He's being required of God to do this phenomenal thing. Would you sign up for being tortured by the Romans so that they don't have to? So they don't have to die? Would you die so that they don't have to die? It's always treated by the apostles as an act of love on the part of Jesus. It's an act of obedience to God, certainly. It is that. But they also equally acknowledge that it was an act of love on his part. He did it for us. He was willing to do it for us. He knew that he was doing it for us and was still willing to do it. We're the enemies of God, but he was still willing to do it. I think what Paul is saying here is, why was he so willing to do that? Well, because he had empathy. He had compassion. He understood enough about human beings and human experience that he had a basis and a ground for sympathetically, empathetically, compassionately being willing to obey his father and go to the cross on our behalf. So I think what Paul is saying is he had to be made like us in every respect to give him the basis for performing this incredible act of love, which in the purposes of God was going to be the way that God was going to redeem us. If he had been an angelos, he wouldn't have compassion, not the same sort of compassion, not the same kind of compassion. He wouldn't have had the same connection with us. So what would that have been all about? An angelos can be a faithful high priest because the faithfulness is to God. So an angelos can do his duty, perform as he's supposed to perform, do whatever God's asked him to do, to intercede, you know, whatever. But he won't have the mercy part. He'll just be doing what God has asked him to do. But that's not who Jesus was, and that's not what Jesus did. Jesus did what he did out of compassion, out of love, out of empathy so that he would make propitiation for the sins of the people. What he's referring to is so that he would go to the cross, so that he would die on the cross and allow himself to be tortured by the Romans. That's why he had to have the mercy as well as the faithfulness. Now, propitiation may be a term you're not familiar with. Any of you who are older and saw the movie Joe versus the Volcano, you know what propitiation is. Propitiation is when, I, I remember even as a child, there was always every Saturday morning, there was a movie that took place in the South Pacific and somebody was going to be thrown into a volcano to satisfy the, the wrath of the volcano god, a living sacrifice. That's a propitiation. Propitiation is when something pleasing or delightful sucks all the air out of the room so that wrath can no longer be there, so that wrath no longer has any space to exist. So if a god is giving something that delights them so much, then... A God has only so much energy, he can't be wrathful because he's being delighted. We parents know that experience. You're really angry with your kids, then they do something so incredibly cute that you just can't be angry with them any longer. The delight that you feel at the cuteness of your child has just sort of completely undermined your anger and your wrath. That's propitiation when that happens. Well, Jesus' death on the cross was an act that was delightful to God, and we'll need to explain that, but it was delightful to God in such a way that it softens, it mollifies, it undermines the wrath of God with respect to those who Jesus chooses to be his own. 
Now, that can be misunderstood, that non-believers typically misunderstand that. Why was Jesus' death on the cross delightful to God? Because God is a God of torture and violence, and he's a sadistic God who likes people to suffer. No, that's not at all what's going on. What was delightful about it is the incredible obedience of his son and the heroic love of Jesus, the thing we just talked about. A human being who was willing to die, the kind of death that he died for mankind, is demonstrating a depth of love that it does not happen very often among human beings. And so that was delightful to, the, to God. And God says, there's something I need you to do for me. I want you to do it. Can I get out of it? Is there any other way? No, there's no other way. Well, then let's do what you want. All of you who have been tested and have had to say one way or another, not your will, but my will be done, you know how excruciatingly difficult that is, how miraculous it is that any of us ever say to God, not my will, but your will be done. It's a miracle. And it is spectacularly heroic. It was heroic when Jesus did it, and it's heroic when we do it. Because we are showing ourselves to be people so committed to the things of God that if I must suffer in order to be obedient to God, then I must suffer. But it's not an option to me to not serve God and serve his purposes and do his will. That's not an option to me. That's a heroic stand for any human being, and it's a miracle that any of us depraved human beings ever get there. That's why it propitiated the wrath of God, because this one who now is going to stand before God as my advocate and my intercessor and say, I want Jack in my kingdom, God is not going to deny the selection of Jesus because he is the beloved son in whom God is well pleased for a variety of reasons, including what he did on the cross, the crucifixion, and his obedience and his love that was demonstrated there. But in order for Jesus to do that, he had to be made like us so that he could empathize with us, so that he could understand human experience and could understand, have the compassion that would take him to be doing the act of love that was going to be asked of him. And then finally, he says, Now by what he has suffered, he who was tried is also able to bring help to those who are being tried. Okay, he who was tried. What's the trial that he's talking about? It's the trial of the cross. Jesus was tested there. Will you obey me? Will you follow me? Will you obey my will? When he said, not my will, but your will be done, and meant it, he passed the test. He passed the trial. And as we see in a number of places, therefore, God highly exalted him. Therefore, God rewarded him with the most exalted status in the whole created order because he obeyed, because he passed the test. By what he has suffered, he who has tried is able to bring help to those who are being tried. Now, why does he make this point? Because as I have suggested in the opening talks on Hebrews, that's part of the problem. That's why this book is being written. These believers in Jesus are being persecuted. They're being ripped off. They're being socially marginalized. They're being imprisoned. They're being killed. They are going through trials of their own. And they're on the verge of giving up. They're on the verge of, he'll call it weariness later in the letter. They're growing weary. Belonging to Jesus is a lot of grief and sorrow and trouble. Not sure I want to do it anymore. They're ready to bail out. So Paul's point is, yeah, you're being tried, but don't you understand that your Lord was tried, that he suffered in order that he might bring help to you? So God is not requiring of you anything that he didn't require of his own son. You have a journey, you have a course, you have a test, an ordeal to undergo, and you must stay the course and persevere and pass the test just as our Lord passed his test. But you're not being asked to go through anything and experience anything and endure anything that God's own son was not asked to endure. When we have that as the background, I think we see why it's significant that he says that here. Just one last comment, and I'll open up for your questions. Now, by what he has suffered, he who was tried is able to bring help to those who are being tried. Now, by what he suffered, what did he suffer? Crucifixion. And that's loaded for Paul. You have a whole book of Romans and the whole 
end of the book of Hebrews, it's going to talk about what the purpose, the significance of Jesus' death on the cross was. The help that he offered through that suffering was that I might receive mercy at the judgment seat. That's the help he's talking about. That's the only help in the end that is really ultimately important. But all too often, you could hear a whole sermon on this sentence where the help that we're talking about is the kind of everyday help that we need throughout our lives. I need more money. I need to get this job. I need to get that other job. I need my wife to be a better wife or my husband to be a better husband. I need my kids to straighten up and start obeying me. I need, we have all kinds of things we need in this life. And we would love help for those things. But Paul is not, now, does God help us in those ways? Absolutely. He's ready and willing and able at any moment, at the drop of a hat, if it's within our best interests, he is willing to step in and solve any one of those problems. Maybe he won't but he's certainly capable of doing it. He's certainly willing to do it, and it happens. But that's not what this verse is talking about. This is no promise that the Jesus who died on the cross will give you a little red sports card that you need. That's not that kind of help. The help that he's offering me is the ultimate help that every human being absolutely needs. I need mercy from God so that I don't stay dead in the end, so that I get to go on to live in the eternal kingdom of God. And that's the help that the high priest is going to give that the whole rest of the book is going to be talking about. Okay, questions, comments? This is kind of a side note question. Is there a reason why they even talk about angels? Why not just say, we're going to get his help because Jesus died on the cross? Why even liken us, have the comparison of angels? What's the point? I'm not quite following the question yet. Are you looking at something in particular? that? I think, you, I think it's Hebrews 16 when it talks about Angelos versus us, they're not going to get it. We are because we need, you said because we need it and they don't. In several places in Hebrews, they talk about angels, and I'm just wondering, like, why if he's talking about us? Well, okay, first of all, the reason I don't translate it angels, I just leave it angeloi, is because I don't think he means angels here. So that's the first thing. I think when he's talking about angeloi, I think he's talking about theophanies, visible manifestations of God himself, because I think what one of the objections that the readers have is the Messiah, the Son of God, when he comes, he's not going to be a human being. Granted, he may be God in the form of a human being, but he's going to be God in the form of a human being. He's not actually going to be a human being. But Jesus was actually a human being, so I don't think he's the Messiah. I think that's the objection that they're making. So throughout this whole section, when he uses the word angeloi, I think when we translate it angels and we think of angels, I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about visible manifestations of God himself. Remember the story of how three men come and eat with Abraham? And that's when they announce the birth of Isaac and Sarah laughs. Remember that story? Well, those three men were two angels and God, Yahweh. So that one man who was Yahweh himself had the appearance of a man but it was actually Yahweh. So when he talks with Abraham later, it's clearly Abraham negotiating with Yahweh, even though it, he's in the form of a man. I think that's an angelos, like what he's talking about here. So when he says, and then the second point is, if you're looking at another English translation, 16 says, now he does not give help to angels, but I translate it, now assuredly he is not obtaining angeloi. That is, in obtaining for what? obtaining to have for his subjects in the eternal kingdom of God. Who did Jesus come to secure for himself to be the individuals who are going to be his subjects in the kingdom of God in the age to come? A bunch of theophanies? No. It was the seed of Abraham that is human beings. So he came to make human beings ready and prepared and qualified to be his citizens in the eternal kingdom of God. But to do that, they had to be redeemed because anyone who's of the seed of Abraham, any one that we were talking about who could even potentially be of the seed of Abraham, is a depraved rebel against God. They need to be redeemed. Thanks. That makes a lot more sense. I get his argument and was basically arguing for the necessity that Jesus be a human being mm -hmm. because he's saving human beings. And 
that was important because it enabled him to have empathy and compassion, and it was an example for those who are struggling and to persevere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. So why does he use Angelo anyway? What's the contrast? What is? I mean, I understand he's not saving Angeloi, but why do you? I mean, is there something, some understanding that the people he was writing to that would have about Angeloi that helps helps them understand the argument here? Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, yeah. I think f- for whatever reasons, I think they've decided that a human being does not have enough bells and whistles to qualify as the Messiah, the Son of God. They have this concept of the Son of God as an incredibly exalted person, which is true, he is. And in their mind, a human being couldn't possibly be exalted enough to serve the role of the Son of God. So some of them, not all of them, but I think some of them had therefore developed the idea that, oh, I, I, know, how, I know how somebody can be a man and be the Son of God, and have enough bells and whistles to be the Son of God, it's actually God. It's not a human being. So it's the angelos of Yahweh. It's going to be an angelos of Yahweh. What in the Old Testament gets translated, the angel of the Lord. Jack, we're in the season of the virgin birth, and it seems to me that that's kind of a trigger for viewing Christ as an angeloi. To me, Anyway, that just kind of points to there's something special about this particular person, mm-hmm. something different. I can't imagine Mary going around and saying, hey, look at my baby. This was born without Joseph being a father to it. And I can't imagine Jesus going around to his disciples and saying, hey, I didn't have a natural father. So my question is, if I'm right, and that kind of causes the confusion of this man, Jesus, having God stuff in them, mm-hmm. then what's the significance of that virgin birth? You understand? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good question. I think there's two things. One of them has just occurred to me in recent months. The first one is that you're right. It's a strange kind of miracle, isn't it? Because it's a miracle that you can't really go public on. I conceived as a virgin. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, who's that going to be assigned to? Who's going to be impressed by that? They're likely to think you're weird rather than glorify God because of that. So it's a very weird kind of miracle. The only one who knows for sure that it's a miracle is Mary. But I think it's for her. Because remember, who is the first educator of the Christ? Who's the one who is in a position to impress upon him? Who are you and what is your destiny? And how do I know that? How do I know that that's your destiny? Well, those are valuable evidences to her that put her in a position to kind of equip her to impress upon this young boy who he is and what his destiny is. Remember, the only account we have of his childhood is the Luke account of his bar mitzvah. And he has all kinds of questions for the rabbis, the experts in the Torah. And they are impressed with his questions. Why? Because he knows so much already. I mean, they're intelligent questions. He's very knowledgeable. People don't have that kind of question if they don't know enough. He has already been trying to figure out who he is by studying the scriptures by the time he's 12 years old. And Mary, I would undoubtedly, would have helped him in that process. I assume Joseph did as well. But look how important it is that Mary be absolutely convinced that this is no ordinary child, so that she can, with confidence and conviction, tell him, you are no ordinary child. So I think that's, it's a miracle, it's a sign, but it's a sign primarily to Mary, I think. Notice how nothing else is made of it by the apostles. Paul never, ever mentions that Jesus was born of a virgin. It's not really relevant to anybody else. It's really only relevant to her. But Paul does say something really interesting in 1 Timothy 2 that I think for the first time in my life I'm beginning to understand. He juxtaposes, I mean, we won't get into the whole thing, but it's that passage where he says, I do not permit women to teach or exercise authority over men, but to remain silent, blah, 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 blah. That passage we all stay away from like crazy so that we don't get in trouble. He says there, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. But then his next statement is, but she will be saved through the childbearing if she continue in self-control, three things. And those three things are really if she perseveres in faith. Childbearing. <laughs> Why the childbearing? And I remember years ago, people suggesting to me, well, the childbearing must be the birth of Christ. And after thinking about it a little bit, I dismissed it and just that, that didn't seem like that made sense to me. But as I've looked at it again, I think that's exactly what he's talking about. Through the birth of Jesus, 
the woman will be saved. He's not saying you and I as men are saved through the childbearing as well. It's not just the women that are saved, but women as well as men are going to be saved through the birth of the Messiah because he's the key to our salvation if we persist in the faith. It's juxtaposed with Adam was not deceived. The woman being quite deceived fell into transgression, but the woman will be saved through the childbearing. It just seems like an incredible act of grace on God's part. It was woman who was the catalyst to mankind's fall, but lest we forget, it's woman who's the catalyst and not man. No man was involved. Woman and not man was the catalyst to mankind's salvation. You see what I'm saying? And I think Paul is recognizing a certain delicious symmetry to that. So I think that's also one of the reasons it was a virgin birth, so that we men would have nothing to do with it. I think sometimes people think, well, what was Christ's DNA? And so when I was thinking, how would I answer that? Well, what was Adam's? I'm sorry, I didn't hear all that. What was Adam's DNA? Right. Or or Eve's? God can really do whatever he wants to do. Right. And he just picked something that seemed quite strange to the natural world in which we live. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, one more, and then we need to go. Jack, is part of the force of this argument how Jesus becomes qualified to be that high priest in mm-hmm. order to make the atonement? So, for instance, he's not helping Angloi. He's interested in securing people who need redemption. In order to secure redemption, he has to become the high priest who can offer that, right? Right. And in order to do that, he had to become human in order to undergo the kind of testing that humans go through, namely... I would insert one more step. Mm -hmm. In order to be a high priest who was going to be effective, he had to have a propitiatory offering to Mm -hmm. offer. Namely himself. Yeah, and And, therefore he had to be human. Right. And how did he qualify... To do that, well, when he in his life underwent that testing, he chose suffering instead of the easy way out. Right, exactly. Because he himself chose to suffer when he was tested, he then is able to help those, namely, he showed himself qualified to be the high priest who could help. Yeah, Yeah, I think in 18, it's only implicit Mm -hmm. what you're saying. There are times he's going to make that explicit. Okay. That's always in the background, I think, is that... That's what qualified him, was his willingness to even suffer to the point of death on the cross for us and in obedience to God. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Okay, thank you. We'll plow on next week.